This episode was recorded on Monday, September 21st at 4 p.m. Atlantic Standard Time. Welcome to the first episode of the Trailblazers and Troublemakers podcast. I'm your host, Scott Costin. Our guest today has made considerable contributions to Canadian journalism in general and to Indigenous journalism in particular. During her 30-year career, Maureen Gugu has worked at the Chronicle Herald, CBC News, and the Aboriginal People's Television Network. Today, she is the publisher and editor of an independent Indigenous news service where she is currently covering an ongoing dispute involving Mi'kmaq fishermen. Maureen, I've admired your work for years, and I'm very glad you're joining us. Thanks for being here today. Thanks for inviting me. I really appreciate it. So, Maureen, we'll start off just with your background. Can you tell us a bit about where you grew up and what your experience was like as a young Indigenous person in Nova Scotia in the, the 70s and 80s? Oh, okay. Well, I... I my home community is actually Indian Brook First Nation, which is a part of the, the Sebaganagadi First Nation. That's the community that's in the news right now. That's my home community. So I, I, that, I was raised there. Um, I grew up um, going to school off reserve. And one of the things that I noticed, especially when I got to high school, the local high school here, is that um, my history, the Mi'kmaq history, was never taught um, in the school curriculum at all. I, I think I remember in grade eight, there was a history class and um, there was some mention about the, you know, the, the explorers coming here, meeting the native people. And then that was really it. There was nothing else. Everything else was just very, um, you, know, you know, all about the, the colonial, history of Canada and, and, you know, and, and all about the British and French wars, but nothing really about, uh, about my own people, you know, the Mi'kmaq people, this, this land is like the, the homeland, the motherland of, of my culture and my heritage. Um, so that was, uh, you know, so that's what it was like for me growing up here. Um, the only, it, my community was very close to, uh, the Shibanakadi Indian Residential School is about nine kilometers from my home, from from the First Nation community, and the church had a really um, at that time they were discouraging um, people from speaking Mi'kmaq, and they had a really um, strong influence in my home community. Um, they convinced my grandparents that speaking Mi'kmaq would never get their children anywhere in life, that they would never succeed in life if they just spoke Mi'kmaq and really encouraged them to speak English. So because of that kind of, uh, you know, that kind of philosophy that, that the church had in the community, I was never really taught my own language. Um, my father was a fluent speaker and he told me, you know, when I was younger, that when I, when I was really young, before I started preschool, that I did speak Mi'kmaq. Um, but as soon as I started uh, going to kindergarten, that stopped. And it was because of my grandparents having this, uh, you know, being told that, you know, you know, you're not going to succeed if you speak Mi'kmaq. So, you know, the emphasis was teaching, you know, young children like myself how to speak English. So, 
you know, growing up, I really didn't, I, like I said, I'm not a fluent speaker, but I do understand some words and phrases. It's, it's part of my own vernacular. I mean, part of the, the, the slang that people speak Mi'kmaq in the community, you know, just certain words and phrases. That, that's pretty much the extent of, of my knowledge of the language. So, you know, cause I, I really feel like I, I really missed out on that. Um, you know, and I, I've always felt envious of my friends who came from other communities who did speak the language. Um, so for me, so that's what it was like for me growing up. Not much of language, not much of culture, not much of history taught in the schools. And the school was a really strong influence for me. So when I decided to get into journalism, when I started actually learning about my own history was actually covering the court cases. Um, the Marshall decision was sort of like, that came along while I was still going to university. So I didn't have that opportunity to cover um, that story. But a lot of the, a lot of the evidence that was um, brought into the Marshall decision um, that the Supreme Court of Canada justices, uh, uh, you know, relied on for the decision, that same evidence was used in the Mi'kmaq loggers case that came out in 90, that, that started in 1999. Um, so I actually got a chance to cover that. And I remember sitting in that courtroom in provincial court in Halifax and realizing there that I was actually learning my own people's history about the treaties, about the peace and friendship treaties, about the historical context around that treaty making process and what the treaty stated. Um, I was learning that for the first time, listening to historians give evidence in the Mi'kmaq loggers case. And it was also the first time I ever heard um, the, the Mi'kmaq creation story. It was actually, I remember it was a, a grand council member, Stephen Augustine, who uh, gave testimony for that. And like I said, it was the first time I've ever heard that. And it just was, I, I, I was very emotional and overwhelmed by it, you know, because I thought it was such a beautiful story. But at the same time, the only time I ever heard it was in a courtroom. Um, so for me, covering Indigenous issues, especially in the beginning of my career really became sort of like me learning my own history on the fly because a lot of that has helped me um, put some context around the stories that I that I still write today it comes back to just covering that court case and the evidence that was given okay thank you for sharing that Maureen so can can you explain how you first got interested in journalism and uh, your journey to uh, a broadcast journalism degree at Ryerson University, and then your involvement in the launch of the Aboriginal People's Television Network. Oh boy, my, my interest in journalism actually started just days after I graduated from high school um, back in 1987. Um, I had actually, when, I, when it, maybe about a month before I graduated, one of my one of the my classmates from the reserve came up to me at the library at the high school and said, "Hey." The Micmac News is hiring summer students. You know what? You should apply. You'd be good at it. And I didn't think that. I didn't think about that. Um, so I thought, you know what? Sure. So I, I got my resume together and I submitted it. And I, you know, went for my job interview and and 
just as I was graduating, I found out I got a summer job working for the Micmac News. My dad actually bought me a 35 millimeter camera. I actually bought myself, a, um, I, I guess with the money that I, I actually won the Indian bursary um, for the highest marks for when I graduated. It, it came with uh, like, I think it was about $200. So I took some of that money and actually bought a, a recorder for myself. So I had a camera, my dad bought me, I had the tape recorder and I spent the whole summer just on my 10 speed and with a backpack, just biking around my community, um, looking for people to interview and photograph for stories. Um, I had a blast that summer. Um, I actually went up and spent a week in Sydney with the newspaper there um laying it out and it was it was quite the the atmosphere i i got to learn a lot of stuff that they that they put in like 12 hour days to lay out the paper for the month i got to take part in that i got to take part in the editing process and put some input on how to lay out i learned a little bit about layout and design back then and like i said i had a blast and at the end of the summer um, they had an award ceremony for the summer students and I actually won two, two awards. I actually won an award for best photography and then I bought one an award for best overall reporter for the summer. And from, the, from that moment on, I decided I just want, I, I want to be a journalist. So that's where all of my career decisions, you know, when I was going to university, I made those decisions there after that summer that that's what I wanted to do. So, you know, so, but I went to St. Mary's University. I got my undergrad in political science. And, and the reason why I did that is um, when I was applying to university before that, that experience at Micmac News, I, you know, I, I applied not knowing where I want to go to university. So I applied to St. Mary's, but while I was there, I wanted to transfer into the King's Journalism Program at, at, in Halifax. I applied and they did not accept me, <laughs> um, which was a little bit discouraging, but I decided that, you know, it's not, you know, they're not the only journalism school around. Uh, they do have a one-year program if you get a degree. So I decided that I was gonna go for that one. So I went to St. Mary's, study political science, um, during that time, I actually got a very rare, I, I was looking for summer jobs in journalism. So I actually put, submitted my resume to CBC um, Halifax. And then I got a call for an interview. And then they actually offered me a very rare paid internship that I would work six months in the newsroom as an editorial assistant, and then six months in current affairs as a production assistant. And I, I learned a lot during that that year I worked there. I, I learned a lot about writing, about storytelling, um, you know, started introducing myself to, you know, things like journalism ethics and, and policies like CDC has lots of manuals about that. And, and I worked with uh, an incredible bunch of people who who encouraged me to, uh, you know, to, to pursue journalism as a career. So, when that year was up, I went back to university, finished my final year, and then decided to apply not just to King's one-year program, I decided to apply to the Ryerson's two-year journalism program. So I applied to both of those programs and, you know, I actually had, you know, clippings, not, not just clippings from McMack News this time, I actually had like a demo reel from CBC, um, you know, scripts that I had written. I actually had a portfolio that I could include in my application. And I actually got accepted into both programs. So 
back in this was back in 92 so I actually from from being rejected the first time to the second time actually having a choice um, I decided that I wanted a, a, a unique experience so I chose the the Ryerson group and and lived in Toronto for two years and studied journalism there so that that's so that's how I wound up going to Ryerson and you know during that time I really wanted to you know my, my main goal was to go and get a journalism degree and then come back to work with the Micmac News and eventually become the editor and that was my goal but what happened was during that time is that Micmac News actually the funding that they received from a grant from uh, Canadian Heritage um, got cut a lot of First Nation newspapers across the country got cut back in 91 92 um, Micmac News could not survive without that money and they they folded. So there was no Micmac News after that. And it was really, you know, for me, it was like, well, what do I do now? Because I, I really wanted to cover Indigenous issues. So my second goal was to, you know, because I was working, you know, I had worked at CBC in Halifax while I was going to Ryerson. I worked as an editorial assistant in the National Radio Newsroom at CBC. So I actually had a weekend job there working. and. And I thought, well, you know, maybe I want to be uh, a radio reporter for CBC. Maybe I'll get a chance to cover Indigenous issues. Um, but what I found in the 90s is that, you know, I worked at CBC and I worked at the Chronicle Herald. And I kind of found that, you know, in the beginning, they were encouraging me to cover Indigenous stories. And I really liked it and I encouraged it. But then after a while, after a year, that kind of enthusiasm started to fade. They, they wanted me to do other news stories. They had other ideas for me for working in their organization, um, which was fine. I just wish they sat down and talked to me about it because that was never my goal. My goal was to try to push and to tell indigenous news stories. And I always found I got, a, you know, there was always some reason why I shouldn't do it. You know, I was, uh, you know, I was told that maybe because I'm a Native person, I shouldn't cover Native issues because that would be a conflict of interest, that sort of thing, without realizing that, you know, they were non-Indigenous covering non-Indigenous issues, that their journalistic objectivity was never questioned, but they were questioning mine because of my, um, my heritage. So I got that kind of attitude. Um, I also, you know, I was actually told by an editor at one point that if I continued on with this native kick, that I would never be considered for prestigious beats, you know, like the provincial legislature. Wow. Um, I would never ever, you know, my, my career would be stalled if I continued on, that I should be looking to cover other stories, that that's, you know, if, if I really wanted to have a, a real fulfilling career in journalism. and. I thought about what he said and I just kind of decided, well, if they don't want to hear my stories, maybe I don't want to be here. So I actually left. This was when I was working at the newspaper. And so I took a break from journalism for a while and I actually worked in communications with the, at the time they were called the Union of Nova Scotia Indians. Now they're called the Union of Nova Scotia Mi'kmaq. And the union at that time actually took on that case of Marshall they were representing Donald Marshall Jr. Um, along with the Confederacy of Mainland Mi'kmaq. I was a communications person at that time. So 
I was the person that actually organized that news conference when the court case came down and the announcement was made. And I remember the significance that that, that court case made. And, and a lot what you're seeing now down in Digby was actually going on in uh, Escanobadich, Burr Church, Nagawak area in New Brunswick. And being on the communication side during that time, it really made me miss reporting. Um, so I remember around that time, I, you know, September 1999 was actually when the Aboriginal People's Network launched. And I noticed that it launched, so I decided to go to the website and I noticed that they had a job section. And they had a notice there saying, we're going to be creating a newsroom. We're going to be um, posting jobs in the near future. If you're interested, keep a lookout on this webpage. So I bookmarked it. <laughs> I bookmarked it. I was, I was interested. I wanted to know if they were going to be hiring a reporter to cover news out here for the network. And eventually in December, a couple of months later, or I should say two, three months later, they actually did. They posted a job for a Halifax correspondent and I was putting my resume together as fast as I could. I didn't even want to uh, mail it to them through regular mail. I sent it by, I sent my resume and my portfolio by FedEx. <laughs> I wanted to make sure they got my resume because I really wanted to be, I, I really wanted to jump at that opportunity because at that time there was no opportunity for me here in Nova Scotia to cover Indigenous issues on a full-time basis. I wasn't too keen about working in television, even though I had a broadcast background, it was mostly in radio and I was comfortable telling stories in radio, but I even remember at Ryerson, I did not like television. <laughs> I'd just rather be behind the scenes, you know, instead of being in front of the camera. And, and that was a little bit of a drawback for me, but as I said, you know, this is my one and only opportunity where I can tell Indigenous issues and stories on a full-time basis. So I better get over my hang-up of being on TV. <laughs> was, was, there, was, there, was there an excitement in, in your community that uh, this new station had come along and also that they were going to be expanding uh, to Nova Scotia and be hiring uh, local Mi'kmaq journalists? I'm not quite sure. Like, I, I, I do remember when the network came on, you know, there were some people watching it, but it was just the very early time. And I think a lot of people were still, you know, not, I, I'm not quite sure why they hadn't heard about it too much. But for me, like it, my cable station here in this, you know, in this area, actually, you know, they, they, they had, they had the station. So I had it on that station nonstop, you know, when I was, you know, I worked at home at the time. So I always had it on the t playing in the background because I really wanted to, you know, to, to know what their programming was like, because I was, I said, if they're going to have job interviews, I, I want to know what kind of, I want to be able to tell them that I watch the programming. So I really took a lot of interest in it, but it was, you know, it was very early, you know, you can tell that they were looking for productions, you know, it was mostly um, Northern oriented. It wasn't really Southern. And that was the whole point of AP10 launching was to bring the network from the North to the, to, to Southern um, Canada. Because that's where it had its origins in the north. But um, for me, it was just, I, I'm not quite sure if, if, if other people around, I, I do know when I told people when I was applying, they were very happy for me and they were hoping that I would get the job. 
and and eventually I you know my my job interview I I did get the job and they flew me into Winnipeg for a month uh, for for training and one thing I loved about that training like I remember coming into the room the first day um uh, of our of our training and, and you can see like we're all assembled in this room in a circle and you know these were other people other indigenous reporters who were looking for the same opportunity that i was looking for must have been you a know? very exciting time for you it was and and the other thing that was really special for me about that time is that this was the first time that uh, a network put together a news department hired a, a news team that were all indigenous and we were all getting ready to launch the first ever national newscast that covered indigenous issues there was never ever going to be another opportunity like that ever anybody who came on board with aptn after you know mid-april you know 2000 they would already be walking into a newsroom that's already been established but for me and this group that we had we were the first we were the pioneers we were there at the beginning and the training was actually aimed at us shaping how we were going to tell news we were given input to the the news directors and the and the producers you know telling them how we think we should be telling these stories what is our philosophy what kind of beats we should be doing you know it was really exciting and for me it was also the first time that i came into a room where i spoke about the issues that were important to me that they actually paid attention and then they actually, you know, took them seriously and validated them. And that was so fulfilling for me. So tell me about your experience at, at EPTN. Uh, you were there for, for quite a while. Uh, and then eventually yep. you decided to go independent and, and uh, establish your own new site. Tell me about that journey from, you know, your EPTN career to, to deciding to, to go it alone. Oh boy. <laughs> um, I, I gotta tell you, I loved the six and a half years I worked there. You know, they hired me and basically I was the, the you know, the, the Atlantic voice for the, the national news show. Um, I got to cover the whole region. Um, I got to cover stories that happened in Shashi and Natwashish and Davis and up in, up in Labrador. I got to go to New Brunswick. I covered um, uh, the Burnt Church, Escanobidage, um lobster fishing complex that were going on up there. I, I got to do live coverage. Um, I got to do news series. I mean, I, I, I really, the, you know, it, it was the first time I ever had that opportunity to cover Indigenous issues on a full-time basis. And I loved every moment of it because no other media outlet gave me that opportunity. That opportunity, I got to follow that 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 court case that dealt with Mi'kmaq loggers charged with, you know, cutting trees on Crown land. Um, they didn't really win that case, but I got to follow it right from provincial court all the way to the Supreme Court of Canada. I actually got to fly down to Ottawa and cover the Supreme Court of Canada hearing. It was the first time I was ever in that courtroom and hearing the arguments and listening to the justices ask questions you know it, it was really surreal for me and and i know that i never would have gotten that opportunity had i stayed in mainstream media you know those though 
eight, working at APTN gave me those moments. And I, I loved it all. Um, but the thing is, it was just really, it was, I was a video journalist. And then with the video journalist, you're, you know, you're, you're shooting your own news stories, you're um, writing your, your news scripts, you're editing your news items, and then you're feeding them to Winnipeg. It was a constant grueling process. And after a while, it can become really fatiguing. It was very, I, I found it very tiring. I found I was exhausted by the end of the week. And I kind of felt like I needed a break. Um, you know, I, I was so glad that I, you know, you know, stepping back from that, I'm, I'm glad that I got the chance to open the, the news bureau. Um, that, you know, at least the, one of the staff members that still works there, I was the one that found her and asked my, you know, news director, hire her. There's a lot of stories happening in this region. I need help. You know, that, that was Trina Roach. Um, I, you know, and I, and I was so glad that we, we had this really strong presence in this region. Um, I was really proud of the fact that, you know, the news stories we covered, we were at least a month ahead of mainstream media. By the time mainstream media caught up to the stories that we were covering that bureau, we had already done the main story, we had done the follow, and we were working on our next one. So, you know, I was really proud of the fact that, you know, that we were able to set that kind of tone um, here. But like I said, at the same time, it was a lot of work. It's a lot of work. You know, the the population in this region is very rural based. So if you want to tell those stories, you actually have to travel to the communities. And it could be anywhere from an hour's drive out of this out of Halifax to two or to four. Lot if if it was a four hour drive, then it was an overnight trip. <laughs> so we're on the road constantly. So by six and a half years, I was thinking, you know, I would like to take a bit of a break. So one day I actually went on the, the Columbia School of Journalism website and just for the heck of it, decided to see if, uh, you know, what the deadline was for applying to their Master's of Journalism program. And when I looked it up, it was at the end of the month. And I usually took a week off for Christmas anyway so uh, my husband who was my he was actually just we weren't married at that time um, we actually spent that whole week of Christmas putting together my portfolio to uh, to apply to to Columbia and I just 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 sent it out just to see what would happen I really wasn't sure where it was gonna go yeah I, I was <laughs> gonna say uh, it, it looked like you had a focus on digital media yeah. digital journalism within that degree and i'm wondering yeah. did you see where the industry was headed and and looking to get uh, ahead of the curve so to speak um well when i when i applied when i applied to columbia on the application they actually ask you what you want to study you know they had uh they had like a newspaper magazine um broadcast or digital and at that point in my career, I had worked in print media. I worked at a newspaper. I worked in radio. Um, I worked in television. The only skill I didn't have was working on digital. And I've always been interested in digital and, and curious. Like I, I, before then, I, I took a couple of web design courses, some continuing education courses. So I was, I was curious about it. So I figured if I'm, I'm going to be applying to this program, taking a break from journalism, I would like to learn a new skill and I want to learn digital skills. So that's why I, I applied. 
so when I, you know, after applying, I, I think it was like at the beginning of April, um, a package came to us by FedEx, came at the door. My husband got the package, but like I said, he wasn't my husband at the time, but he actually came into the room and just went, woohoo, we're going to New York and gave me this big package. <laughs> I hadn't even opened it in. I was like, how do you know that? And when I opened, there was my acceptance letter. <laughs> so um, after that, I applied for a leave of absence from working at APTN and I decided um, to, to go to, uh, go to Columbia. But I, I think one of the, one of the main reasons, one of the main things that, that, uh, that I wanted to go was, uh, I think it was two years, two weeks after my acceptance, I actually got another letter saying I, I won a full tuition scholarship wow. to attend. Wow. So at that point, I just said, I have to go. <laughs> so we did, we packed up a U-Haul and we drove to New York City and we lived there for 10 months. And while I was there, like I, like I said, I was in the digital program. And at that time, they called it new media. This was in 2006. Um, they called it new media. And it was only a small class of about, like, I think they only took like 21, 22 students. I was learning the new skills. And part of the program was that we had to take part in these uh, uh, seminars and panel discussions that were set up in the evenings. And it was, you know, as part of the curriculum for us to attend those. So one of them was, um, it was called the script Howard's, um, the changing media landscape. And the people they had on that panel were really interesting. One of them was Jimmy Wales from Wikipedia. Uh, another one was the editor of uh, Wall Street Journal, the WSJ.com. He was the editor of that. Um, there was another individual, his name is Kevin Seitz. Uh, he was a video journalist who worked with uh, other networks like uh, NBC and CNN. But his story was interesting. Um, a little bit of a side note here. He actually convinced Yahoo to give him $2 million to run a website covering conflict in the world. And he did it like he would just pick a spot in, in the world where there was a conflict going on. And he would, uh, you know, with his gear, would submit video, photography, content, photo, you know, all sorts of multimedia. And, and he just picked these different spots in the world. And, and like I said, you know, they, they gave him $2 million and he hired a staff of, of people to help him put that website together. It was actually called at the time, Kevin Seitz in the hot zone. And he actually turned that into a, um, you know, into a book and into a documentary after that whole uh, media project with Yahoo was over. Um, so I found his story really compelling that he did that. And then there was another woman who actually did, um, um, she, she, uh, she started a website based on her own niche interest in security filings. <laughs> she was very interested in security filings. So she just did her own niche website on security filings and was talking about how it earned her enough income to, um, to basically, you know, she didn't, she, she was able to quit her job and just do that website full time. And this was in November, 2006, when I was listening to this panel discussion. And, it, and like I said, listening to them talk about them, you know, about their passions and starting up these websites and, 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 and doing it for a living. I just, you know, I, I started writing in my notebook, you know, website Indigenous Issues Atlantic Canada. So I wrote that down. And after the seminar was over, or the panel discussion was over, I immediately went back to, to my apartment. 
I did a Google search um, trying to see if there was anybody in the Atlantic region who was covering that as a website. Couldn't find a thing at all. I came across different other different websites, but none specifically about covering Indigenous issues. And that's when I said, okay, this is what I want to do. Um, I, I, I got to figure out a way to do this. And I think that was when I decided that um, I wasn't going to go back to APGAN. <laughs> I decided then that I wanted to do journalism my way because at the time, even though I was covering these stories and I loved covering them, I was um, feeling a bit frustrated that um, I could only do like, you know, one to two stories a week. And it always had to be, um, you know, I had to convince a, a, a a team in Winnipeg that it was a compelling story to cover. I always had to justify that and explain it to them, you know, and after I did, I got to do it, but it was just really, you know, it was, it wasn't giving me the freedom that I wanted to do. I, I felt like I could take covering indigenous issues a step further and use my expertise and, and use that institutional knowledge that I gained from covering indigenous issues for six years and apply it to a website that I, where I could be an editor because it comes back to that whole idea that I had back when I started working in journalism was being the editor of Back News. There was no such job here in Atlantic Canada. So if I wanted to be an editor of, you know, of a publication that covered Indigenous news in this region, I was going to have to create it myself. So from that moment on, that's what I've been doing since 2006, trying to get to that point. And and so and so the site you you settled on, Gugu Guez is, uh, I think, mm -hmm. remains the the only Atlantic Canadian uh, news site focused exclusively on Indigenous issues. How long have you been doing it? What have you learned in in being your own boss, your own uh, assignment editor, if you will? And yeah. Where are you hoping to go with it in the future? I, I, I guess for me, um, I've been running it since uh, 2015. So from my story about where I got the idea, I got the idea in November uh, 2006. And I didn't launch it till, um, until August 2015. So it took me nine years, almost nine years to get from the, from the idea to execution. And, and the thing is, and I, can under, and I can see why it's probably still the only website that exists in this region, because it's the type of thing that you have to devote, devote 24 seven to, you know, it's not something that you can, you can do um, while you're doing another job or doing another contract because I tried. <laughs> I tried, I actually had a website. It wasn't Google West News at the time. It was actually called Radio Gugu. <laughs> I was trying to play off of one of my, um, my nicknames when I was going to uh, Ryerson because I was working at CBC Radio and I was really into radio at that time. A lot of my classmates just called me Radio Gugu based on the Queen song. So I thought I'd, I'd go off that moniker and, and a lot of people sort of catch it, caught on to it. But at the same time, what was going on in those years was that, um, you know, I, I would, uh, you know, start working on the websites or covering stories, but then realize I need um, money to pay the bills. So I started taking contracts and doing some communications work to pay the bills. And then when I got the work done, 
and the bills were paid and then I was broke again. And then I, so it was turning into this vicious cycle. So I wound up taking a, a, a longer contract. It was a little bit more two years and just used that time to save some money. So when that contract ended in 2015, I actually had a bit of a state savings account and my husband and I just decided that, um, you know, in order to do this, we can't be working. Like he was working at a photo lab at the time. So we wound up just, um, just kind of pulling the plug at the same time and saying, okay, we're going to do this. We're going to do it now. And, you know, we, we'll see if we can make a go of it. So, so, so in August, 2015, that's when we decided, like we, we actually started it in June, 2015 and started working on some stories to have on the website for an official launch on the 25th of August. And, uh, and from then on that we've been constantly, it feels like we've been hustling to try to keep it going and keep the bills paid, keep the lights on, make, you know, make sure we're not homeless while we're doing this. It's, it's been a struggle. It's been, a, it's, you know, but the thing is, it's like I said, it's, um, you, you gotta devote, you know, devote yourself to it 24 seven. It's just, you know, you can't be doing anything else. Journalism really takes that, you know, it, 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 it demands that attention. One of the reasons why I felt it was at that time was um, was when Patreon came along. Patreon is the crowdfunding website um, that allows people to contribute, but not just contribute at a one time, but they can con they contribute on a monthly basis. So it helps you generate a monthly income. And our campaign has been going a little bit up and down over the years, but it's been generating enough income like I like I said, I think we were we started to do that, and then when we realized we were kind of hitting a wall, not really um, moving, we didn't have the growth we thought we were need, so we actually started selling advertising about a year later. So with advertising and the Patreon campaign, we've been sort of able to balance um, paying the basic bills, um, and and that's where we've been um, right now. And and like I said, it's it has its ups and downs. You have to kind of uh, make compromises because, you know, when you have limited funds, you, there's only, you know, you, you need money to go on the road. You need money for gas. You need money for accommodations. You know, when I worked at APTN, you know, I had, I submitted invoices and got, you know, got reimbursed. You know, you can't do that when you're, you know, when it's just yourself, you don't have some other you know, some other company that's helping you pay, it's, it's you. So we've, we've had to make compromises. I've been kind of lucky that I have friends in the region that I can um, spend overnight with, you know, like they, they offer accommodations. So you don't have to worry about um, hotel, which I am incredibly fortunate and very grateful for that. So we're not completely, you know, <laughs> you know, but it's only, you know, when we go to New Brunswick and when we go to Cape Breton, we know we have a place to stay. For the story that's going on in Digby, where we we really don't have that, so we have to kind of make day trips out of that one, that story. Spend a few, you know, drive early in the morning, spend a few hours, and then drive back. So that can be exhausting too. Your your husband Stephen is the photographer. You're you're a two person uh, newsroom, yeah. and and he yeah, does excellent work. By the way, yes, he yeah. yes he is an excellent photographer, but he's also the driver. Okay. <laughs> he's also the cook. He's also the cook. <laughs> So he does a lot of uh, a lot of the other stuff to to support to support us and and make sure that you know I'm in the I'm in the mood for writing. <laughs> he's he's wearing a lot of hats then is he? 
Exactly, exactly. Right now, you've got a really interesting and in some parts of the province divisive story that's going on. Just for people who aren't familiar with uh, the Marshall decision and with Indigenous uh, fishing rights here in Nova Scotia and Atlantic Canada, can you just explain what's, what's going on and uh, the type of stories you've been producing for Google Quest? Well, the, the whole Marshall decision has been going on for about 21 years. Um, that decision, when it came down in 1999, um, that actually, that case originated back in 1993 when Donald Marshall Jr. Um, was charged with catching and selling eels without a license in Palmquit Harbor, just outside Antigonish. Um, he took, he actually, you know, he went to the Union and Confederacy, said he was charged. They decided to defend him and then use the treaties as his defense. And the treaties they used were the, the treaty, the Peace and Friendship Treaties of 1760 and 61. The Peace and Friendship Treaties in this region are pre-Confederation treaties. They're treaties that were signed between um, the Mi'kmaq leadership. Um, it's not just Mi'kmaq leadership, we're talking about Maliseet and Passamaquoddy as well. Um, so they, they, those, those leaders had to ratify those peace and friendship treaties as well. And when you read the treaties, I mean, the, the gist that you get from them is just basically, they're exactly what they are, peace and friendship, you know, um, guidelines to live side by side together in harmony, in peace, you know, you know, Mi'kmaq people were guaranteed to be able to continue their life the way they were living, you know, and the settlers that were coming in um, promised to respect that while they were colonizing the land you know it's peace and friendship and that case made its way to the supreme court of canada junior lost those cases in the lower courts and he was convicted and fined but he appealed those rulings and went to the supreme court and in the supreme court it was the second time in you know in this province that they basically said that the peace and friendship treaties are valid that there is a treaty right um, to catch and sell fish for a living, but they said it was a moderate livelihood. It's not for an abundance of wealth, but it was moderate livelihood. And that case spurred off a lot of uh, conflicts, like in the beginning was in Burnt Church, where Mi'kmaq fishermen, or harvesters as they're saying now, because it's not just men there, it's women too. So um, I, I guess the term I like to use now is harvesters because it's, it's, it's not gender specific but they were dropping lobster traps in um, just off the shores in a, a Skenobidich or Burnt Church. And they were um, coming into conflict with uh, non-Indigenous uh, harvesters from Negawak um, in that area and also DFO, especially with DFO, as soon as they would drop the traps in the water, um, DFO, would, DFO were the ones who were pulling them out. And it was a conflict that was happening every summer, like for summer, the September 99, and then it was the summer of 2000 and then 2001, before a lot of the communities started signing uh, uh, commercial fishing agreements with uh, DFO. And those agreements were that they would give them money, um, they would give them licenses. Um, if they agreed to fish in, during the commercial season, they would give them money to buy boats and gear and training and and a lot of communities signed up for them not every community did um so but it really never 
dealt with the issue of moderate livelihood and what does moderate livelihood mean? You can fish for a moderate livelihood. You know, it just seemed like the interim agreements just kept getting renewed every year, every year, and the issue just kept getting pushed aside until about maybe three, four, about, I wouldn't say three, maybe three years ago, um, DFO appointed a, a federal negotiator to start meeting with First Nation communities to start talking about what does a moderate livelihood mean? What does, how do we define that and how do we incorporate it into the current commercial fisheries? So those talks have been going on with various First Nation communities, but it seems like now it has reached a point where the sides are kind of, they're out, they're walking away from the table and they're saying, you're not talking the language that we want to talk. You're not wanting to define moderate livelihood for us. So we're going to do it ourselves. And that's what uh, Sebega Negative is doing right now. They've come, they've come up with their own management plan to run their own moderate livelihood fishery. So that's what's going on right now. It, it, it seems like it's just, they don't, they, they're not getting anywhere in the negotiations. So they're just doing it on their own. It seems and, to me the, the flare up here is, is largely the, res, the, the fault of the federal government for not properly defining what moderate livelihood means. I think if yeah. they gave a, uh, you know, in consultation with the First Nations, I think if they gave a proper definition, do you think that would um, perhaps prevent these flare ups from happening where you have Indigenous and non-Indigenous fisher, fish harvesters, to use your term, um, yeah. you know, opposed to each other over these issues. If the federal government created a proper definition, would that, would that resolve the problem or at least help it? Well, I think it's not so much create a proper definition. It's to, um, to listen to the input of what defi that definition means to, you know, to indigenous people in this region, the, uh, the descendants of those who signed those treaties. You know, I, I think when you look at, a lot of people are talking about moderate livelihood and what this moderate livelihood mean. Well, the court said that it can't be an abundance of wealth. But the thing is, when you're looking at anybody who goes into business, you know, as an entrepreneur like myself working in this, you know, running my own website, I do know that you do need to make a certain amount of money to pay the bills, right? But you go into business to make money too and make a profit. But what what amount of profit gives you a moderate livelihood? You know, what is a moderate livelihood? Is moderate livelihood um, being having enough money to pay a mortgage, uh, to pay car payments for a vehicle, to uh, to be able to, you know, you know, is moderate livelihood, you know, making sure that you have enough money to for food and shelter and gas money? Um, is moderate livelihood being able to save some money for your children to buy to buy stuff for your children or to save for, you know, education. You know, moderate livelihood, I don't know, to me, means, you know, middle class. It means being able to provide for yourself and your family. You know, I, I don't think that that's unreasonable. But when you look in that region that's in St. Mary's Bay, there's a lot of lobster there. There's a lot of money to be made. You know, there, there's a lot of... Um, non-indigenous fishers there or harvesters there who are making uh, you know the, the, they're making a huge profit there you know are they trying to protect their own moderate livelihood or are they trying to protect their profits or their wealth and i think that's the discrepancy and i think when you come to the table and discuss that you know what is a moderate livelihood i, I you know you, you 
there's some I've I've heard some leaders like I remember um, interviewing a, a past Macquarie leader Hugh Akaji in New Brunswick. Like they're in the middle of negotiations with with the federal government on actually getting recognized as a nation as the past Macquarie, and part of those negotiations is also including moderate livelihood discussions. And when I spoke with him, he said we don't even know what moderate livelihood is because there are some people who are making a million dollars off a, of a commercial fishing license. Is that a moderate livelihood? You know, those are sort of the discrepancies that, that don't seem to be addressed. I, I don't know what's going on at the table. I don't know what's being discussed. A lot of those discussions are confidential, so you can only assume um, just from talking to leaders in interviews, what could be the discussion. And I think that that's where the disparity is, you know, how much is a non-commercial harvester making from their own license compared to what if you gave that same, a similar license to an indigenous fisher under a moderate livelihood. That's why it's so important to have your perspective, Maureen, and the perspective yeah. of your publication, which seems to have really gained traction around this issue. It seems like you're getting some new readers Tell me about the response to your recent reporting and where you think it's going to go from here. Oh boy. Um, what happened on, I have to tell you what happened um, is um, last week, uh, Sebega Negadi decided that they were going to launch their own uh, moderate livelihood fishery at the Salnierville Wharf. At that time, like just as last week, my husband and I were kind of wondering, you know, you know, do we have enough money in the bank account to pay for gas to go down there to cover the story? You know, it was just that desperate for us. We were kind of figuring out how to do it, but my community actually offered a, a bus to drive people down there. So we decided, well, we don't have to pay gas money. We can just uh, hop on the bus. So we actually did that. And we went down there to cover the story. I didn't get to stay there as long as I wanted to. My husband actually wound up getting on a boat and he wound up pitching a ride home with somebody else. So um, it was that kind of a day. Um, so when I got home Thursday evening, I was really beat. And I had my story half written, but I was tired. And I said, you know what? I said, I know other news organizations are covering this story right now. They're putting stuff up online right now. I said, I can't com compete with that right now. What I can do is I can offer a lot of perspective and a lot of information and give a little bit more context to what, what happened with the announcement. What does that mean? So the next morning I woke up really early and I just started writing and I wanted to get it up by noon and I didn't because I was still putting information in. I wound up getting it up, getting it up by two o'clock in the afternoon on Friday and I, posted it online and I think because just a lot of people were online looking for information about the issue it, it just uh, it, it just started being shared on social media and then all of a sudden my Twitter feed started blowing up it just was constantly uh, getting all these alerts of retweets and and comments and shares and likes and it was incredible but at that same time, a couple of people just pointed out that, you know, hey, this person has a Patreon campaign. This is independent. If you want her doing these stories, you know, you should contribute. And at that time, my husband and I were actually, you know, that night, we were kind of thinking, can we, can we afford to go back down there again? Because, you know, things are getting tense. We should be there. 
And first we said, no, we were just going to do a live blog and just update from, you know, from here where, where I live in Milford. Um, but then late in the evening, we decided, no, no, we're going to, we're going to, we're going to take the hit to the bank account. We're going to spend a day. We're going to travel down, get some interviews, photos, stuff like that, and come back and write the story. And the thing is, I shared that on Facebook. First, I said was, we can't go financial reasons. We're just going to do a live blog. So just tag me and I'll make sure I get the information in the live blog. But then, at, you know, just before midnight, we just said, nope, we're not going to do the live blog. We're going to go down. We're going to take the hit. We think it's important. And then all of a sudden, we started getting a lot of contrib people contributing to our Patreon campaign. People were contacting me privately, wanting to know how they can donate to us to cover our expenses for the day and throughout the whole day that that all happened all day saturday that's all it was we were just constantly getting these notices of people who were contributing to our patreon campaign before friday our campaign was sort of at 20 percent of our first goal of um, 1500 us dollars um so we were only at 20 percent um by the by the end of the day on saturday we had almost reached um we were like two thirds away from uh, from reaching our first goal. You know, that was just in the matter of 24 hours. All of a sudden people just started supporting and it was just based on that that one story that I filed that I spent a couple of extra hours on making sure that I had all of the information. And I like to think that because I did that, people appreciated it. They got the information that they needed and they saw how important it is to get that information out. I'm so glad to hear that you're you're getting more support on Patreon because it, it's well deserved. You you do outstanding journalism. You bring a vitally important perspective and your contacts throughout the, the region help you to develop uh, you know much more detailed stories than than maybe other outlets are able to do. Where would people find your site, your social media accounts, and, and how would they find you to support you on Patreon? Can you can you just okay. shout out um, your uh, coordinates? Yeah, to sure, people? sure. I mean, um, my website is called Google Quest News. The way it's pronounced and the way it's spelled are different because I use the um, the Smith Francis uh, orthography to, for my the spelling of Google Quest. So you can find it online at ku kukwes.com. My Patreon um, crowdfunding site is actually patreon.com. So that would be p-a-t-r-e-o-n.com slash gugugwes. So and, and gugugwes is k-u-k-w-e-s. So that's where you can find my uh, crowdfunding campaign if people want to, to contribute to you know, to supporting the website and supporting uh, my husband and I traveling in this region to cover Indigenous issues. On social media, um, again, I'm at Google West. It's just Google West on Twitter. Um, on Instagram, it's actually Google West underscore news. So you can um, follow us on, on Instagram there. Um, I also have personal accounts myself um, where I, you know, where I'm, um, I mostly interact more with people on my personal accounts. Um, you can find me at mgugu on Twitter, and it's also mgugu on um, on Instagram as well. And I'm also on Facebook, so if you go facebook.com, mgugu. And well, also on Facebook, we're also Gugu Guest as well. 
Absolutely. So thank you again, Maureen. It's been a pleasure to talk to you. I really appreciate you being my first guest. Continue the good work. Uh, I hope people will check out your site and will support your journalism. And I'm hoping perhaps for uh, episode 50 or 100, we can have you back on the, uh, the podcast. Well, Scott, thank you so much for inviting me on. It is an honor. I'm glad you've chosen me to be your first guest on your podcast. And I would love to come back and, and talk to you about, uh, about Indigenous journalism in this region and uh, about Google West News. Excellent. Thanks again. Okay, thank you. Bye now. Bye. Thanks for tuning in to the first episode of the Trailblazers and Troublemakers podcast. If you'd like to follow us on social media, our Twitter account is at Trail Trouble Pod. And you can email us at trailtroublepod at gmail.com. Hope you'll join us for the next episode. Bye for now. Thank you.